we are going through a series that we are about to wrap up called Renovation of the Heart. The big picture is we've been looking at what it means to become like Jesus um, by engaging in the practices that Jesus, not only himself, uh, had done, but also his followers had done, but also 2,000 years of church history have engaged in practices like fasting, praying, gathering together as a church family for worship and community as we are doing even right now. Today we're going to be looking, last week we looked at the subject of Sabbath and taking time to rest, to engage with God's uh, people and to engage with Him. Um, today we're going to be taking a look at the practice of peacemaking. Um, so then next week we're going to kind of summarize everything. We'll take a basic look at everything we've been looking at. We'll kind of bring it together and give some closing, closing thoughts on this entire series. The week after that, we have, so, we have a guest speaker, which I think you guys will be super blessed by. The week, before, the week after that will be the week before Easter. And then we got Easter, and then after Easter, and then two weeks after Easter, we're going to have a special service, because that will be a 25th anniversary church service that you guys will not want to miss. Yes, it's awesome. So we're going to spend some time celebrating what God has done, looking at his faithfulness. And then we're going to begin to jump into the series on the book of Daniel that we've been telling you guys about for quite some time. So that's a little bit of a layout for the next several weeks, if not month and a half, two months, whatever. So with that being said, what we're going to look at, so if you guys have your Bibles, once you get them ready, we're going to take a look at about four different verses. I'm going to read them all to you guys, and then we will begin to, I'll pray, and then we'll begin to get into the subject matter, looking at the subject of the practice of peacekeeping. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, open up there. Uh, Then jump forward to the book of John chapter 17. Uh, You'll need at least three, maybe four fingers for this. John chapter 17, verse 20. Skip forward to the book of Philippians chapter 4. If you have no idea where Philippians is, I realize it might be a little bit in the off sequence here, but you can look in the table contents. It's fine. Take your time. Philippians chapter 4. It's a small little book. And then Romans chapter 12. So Matthew chapter 5, John chapter 17, Philippians chapter 4. Romans chapter 12, um, and if you just completely ignored all that, we'll have them up on the screen anyhow. So, you're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. We seek to cater to ladies. I'm just kidding. We love you. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. No, you're not supposed to insult your audience. So, anyways, uh, how about I'm going to have you guys stand one more time. We're going to read scripture. How about that? Is that cool? Let's all stand. We're going to read scripture. We'll pray. We'll get to work. It's a way of just showing reverence, respect to God and to his word. So, let me read this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 says this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. John chapter 17. I do not ask, as Jesus prays to his Father, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's looking forward to the future. Uh, He envisions people that will be followers of him, that we're not there with him, but we'll be followers of him due to the faithful testimony witness of those that were there with him. So you know what he's looking at right now is you. This is Jesus praying specifically for you. Listen carefully to what he's praying. It's what he says. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me, verse 22, The glory that you have given to me, I have also given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as I am loved by you. 
Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. This is Paul's writing to this church community that lives in a city called Philippi. And uh, that church community had people in that community and people where that inhabited community oftentimes have conflict. I know none of you know nothing about that, but just imagine that you lived in a community there was a little bit of conflict or tension. So Paul is writing to this community, specifically singles out two people's names, two ladies. Their names are Eudia and Syntyche. He says, I entreat Eudia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, help these women who have labored by my side with me in the gospel, whose names are in the book of life. Romans chapter 12. So last passage, because you're doing great. Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, which is an old way of saying do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give uh, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it all depends upon you, live peaceably with all. This is the word of God. And we ask you, Father, right now that you would just help your word to begin to reshape our heart, our mind, our thoughts, our desires. God, we want to walk in harmony, first of all, with you. We want to accept God and trust what you have accomplished for us through Jesus. But then, God, we want to begin to live into the peace that you call us to demonstrate on a horizontal level with others. So help us now, God, as we begin to unpack and think through carefully and consider what it means to be a peacemaker. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So this past week, I was thinking a little bit about just um, how God wires us and calls us, and one of the phrases that kept coming back to my mind was this, this idea of assignment, that God gives us assignments, things that he calls us to. Now, in, 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 a, in a broader sense, if you are a follower of Jesus, we all have unique forms of assignment because each one of us are unique people. We're created unique with different giftings. We have different spheres of influence, different places where God has planted us. So there are each one of us are going to have, to some degree, unique assignments that are distinct to our our lives and the people that we are involved with. Um, but on the other hand, there are also assignments, I think, that are, that are unilaterally the same across the board. And one of those assignments is, is this, the idea of, of peacemaking. That I, I think that Jesus actually envisioned in his understanding, in his prayer, that he imagined a group of followers that, though imperfect as, as we all are, right, he, he realized, he envisioned that by the power of God's spirit that would reside within us, that we would become a type of people that embodied peace or living at peace with, with one another. Again, it's challenging, it's hard. We'll look at that more in just a second. But as I was thinking about that, that that's an assignment that God has given to every one of us. Now, whether or not we live into that or not is a whole other discussion, a whole other topic. If we run from that is, is another topic. If we ignore it is another topic. But the idea is that we, we all have, to some degree, these assignments. And my encouragement, if you have no idea what those assignments are that maybe God has called you into, um, or even the unilateral assignments that are given to all of us, that's part of what this whole series is about. 
are these practices, are practices that God gives us, Jesus did, his disciples did, 2,000 years of history had done, as a way of basically beginning to shape our hearts to become like Jesus. They're assignments, if you want to think of it that way. Now, I would encourage you that if you have no idea what that is, those assignments are that God's given you, begin to pray to that. Like, God, what do you want for my life? What do you have for me? What are ways in which you want to use me? And what are the people that are around me that you want to help me, uh, empower me to demonstrate, to show forth your love in their lives? My encouragement would be for you to just begin to pray into that. God, what do you have for me by way of that? Uh, what I want to begin to look at now is kind of this bigger idea of peacemaking. Because as I continue to think about this, I, I realize that we live in this world right now that conflict, chaos, turmoil ultimately defines our relational landscape, right? Um, we, we live in this world where, uh, on the one hand, we see conflict on every level, whether it be ethnicity versus ethnicity, male versus female, male versus male, blue states versus red states, wife versus husband, father versus children, and in a lot of cases, even church versus church. You, you have this like inner anger that oftentimes makes its way out in a variety of different ways. And in other words, the, the idea across the landscape is this conflict. And, and I truly believe that at the end of the day, that much of this conflict that we either are constantly aggressively engaging in or pulling away from and running from is really in a lot of ways the source of a lot of our, our anxiety and our stress and our worry and our grief and our pain and our sorrow and all these other things. And what God wants to do is to reposition us, reposture us, if you would, to rethink about how we deal with this type of stuff. So the funny thing is, if I were to go around the room and ask you know, the question, how many of you would choose or think that peace and or love are traits that are, are good? I think most of us would be like, yes, I'm all about love, or yes, I'm all about peace. And, it, and it's funny because you can turn on the news and you have... To some degree, I mean, in a lot of ways, this is kind of what like Facebook rants are all about. People are just like dropping and dropping and positing a lot of just anger and vitriol and frustration and whatnot. And yet, somebody somewhere kind of comes on into those streams, whether it be a Twitter feed or whatever. And they're just like, "Can't we just all get along? Can't we just have peace? Can't we just all figure this out?" So, on the one hand, I think we would all be like, "Yes, we we are all about peace. We're all about love." But then you begin to look for the evidence of that in our lives, and it's just non-existent for the most part. And the question is, why? Why is that the case? And what I would suggest is that the reason why we don't see a whole lot of love, we see a lot of people talking about love, we see a lot of idealization about love, but we don't see a lot of love, nor do we see a lot of peace. And I would suggest the reason why is because it's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard to love someone that just gives you nothing but grief. It's really hard to be at peace with somebody that is constantly aggravating you. It's really hard to actually embody a posture of, of love and peace. And I think that's one of the reasons why we, we just pull away from it. And we don't engage with it. We ignore it. And what I would suggest is that the whole concept that Jesus is talking about here is peacemaking. The word peacemaking is kind of an interesting word. Uh, uh, the Greek word is erenos. We'll actually look at the, a little video at the end of this. Uh, the Greek word uh, in the New Testament is erenos. It comes from the, it's the direct translation from the ancient Hebrew, which is the Hebrew word for that, shalom. And every single time, or most of the times, whenever the Old Testament word shalom gets translated in the Greek language, it's that Greek word erenos. And the peacemaker is 
Uh, someone that, and then Arenos is the first part of that word, and then the second part is the word that we would get the uh, word poema, or po- poem. Um, it's a word that Paul actually says, you are his workmanship, meaning that God is kind of creating a work of art. Because what, what's a poem? A poem is a string of words that may be not very connected, but you bring them together in one constant, like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a poet, but um, in one way that it kind of creates something that's, that's beautiful. And that's, that's what a peacemaker, someone that brings, that's looking for peace, looking for ways to bring peace into our lives into our world, into our relational context. This is something that's important to Jesus. He prayed for it. He modeled it. <laughs> he created disciples that begin to write about it. For example, the person in Nepal and so on and so forth. This is, this is not a marginal topic on God's mind, by the way. This is not something that you've got to work really hard to figure out, does God even care about this? This is all about what God cares about. This is on God's mind. This is where everything is going, by the way. In fact, we know this because at the book of Revelation, the very last book in the entire Bible, there's this image that the writer John kind of portrays where he says, I see a new heaven and a new earth, and they've come together. And he even uses the language, they have married. Like coming down like a bride prepared for its bridegroom. And the image is that heaven and earth are no longer divorced. Think about that. Right now, if you want a biblical image as to why things are horrible on planet Earth, it's because Earth in general is at odds with heaven. It has not embraced heaven. It's not, it's not in love with the ideals of God, God's kingdom. It's, it, it's not welcoming. It's not lining up. It's not in alignment with the heart of God. It is in disharmony with God, incongruity with God. Heaven and Earth are divorced, separated. Where everything is going in this universe is the two will overlap, be in harmony. And we call that peace. And this is the idea that God says, because I'm doing this, I'm going to bring people into this. So the question I want to ask is, is there a practice that can reduce uh, and or end hostility, unforgiveness, and conflict, and in its place demonstrate healing, forgiveness, and reconciliation? And the answer, obviously, is, is yes, peacemaking. That's what I want to look at here today. Uh, to kind of give a little bit of a definition, as we've been trying to do over the past few weeks, that we've been looking at these variety of practices, the way I would describe it is this. The practice of peacemaking demonstrates that Jesus has overcome the dehumanizing forces of sin and death. We can call that chaos, just chaos. And launched a new creation of life and peace through what we are celebrating in this season, uh, his life, death, and ultimately resurrection. Like this is, this is some, the, the story of the Bible is that something new has launched and it's, over, it's taking over what is old and dying and falling by way of the path of death. Uh, Jesus has launched new creation. So with that being said, what I want to begin to do now is I want to look at some of these passages and what do they teach that we just looked at. So I want to skip ahead and just yeah, look at these. Basically, five things I want to look at. We'll kind of make some observations. Then we'll circle back, and we will look at a video. And then we'll end with some time to pray and just respond to the Lord. But number one is these passages, they teach us, first and foremost, that Jesus actually believed that peacemakers are, are blessed. Hence the phrase, blessed are the peacemakers. And again, this is Jesus teaching in what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest recorded sermon or message. 
And one of the things that he says very beginning, at the very beginning of this entire sermon is blessed or how happy or how fortunate, how full of life, how full of God's favor. And again, there's a variety of ways in which you can think about this. It's a state of being acknowledged and recognized and satisfied. How blessed are those that, that are peacemakers. And then he goes on to say, for they shall be called sons of God. And again, it's gender inclusive. It's male and female. The idea is children of God. You will be children of God. But again, even I don't want to, I don't want to diminish the phrase sons of God because uh, in, in ancient patriarchal society, again, like it or not, the fact of the matter is having a firstborn son was really, really important. And it's a way of basically elevating to a really, really high degree. saying those that are peacemakers are after the heart of God. You resemble, you look like your father uh, as we live into this concept of peacemaking. And Jesus says you're blessed. Secondly, as we see that Jesus prayed for unity for his people. And again, this is an important thing to just consider, that this is a prayer that's recorded just prior to Jesus' death. Now, what's really notable about this is that when you think about it this way, that if you or I were to basically find out that we're going to die within the next like 36 hours, I know a little bit more of it, but imagine with me, like if you were about to die and you knew things were not going to go really well, like what would be on your mind in that moment? Apparently for Jesus, he knew he was going to die. He knew his mission was ultimately going to climax in this moment. And in that moment, what he does is he begins to pray to his father for not only his immediate followers, but also the future followers, as I already mentioned, that they would be one, that there would be a unity about them. Uh, Again, this is so significant to Jesus. He's about to die. He knows he's about to die. And again, it's just not just like lay over, keel over, and die. It's about being tortured. It's about being abandoned. It's about having your best friends basically turn their back on you and run. It's about being shamed, not not just shamed, but shamed ultimately to death. I know all the images and pictures historically show Jesus in some sort of a loincloth. He was probably naked. Imagine Jesus naked on the cross. This was the image of deep, utter, ultimate shame. And in that moment, he says, Father, please make my family one. Bring them together so they would love and serve and be one. So thirdly, Jesus actually believed that the unity of his people would be the most powerful testimony that he was sent by God to bring hope and salvation. And I just want you to listen to Jesus' prayer again. I'll let Jesus do the talking on this one. So just listen carefully what he had to say. Then you can draw your own observations. Just listen to what he says. Verse 21 of John chapter 17. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. So he's pointing out that there is this incredible unity Uh, Again, if you want to think of it this way, everything Jesus did, everything, without any question, any other shadow of turning or variance or whatever, every single thing Jesus did was always in perfect alignment with the heart of the Father. There was no incongruities, no turning, doing his own thing, no just kind of figuring it on his own. Everything he did was in alignment and agreement with the heart heart of God, which is kind of cool when you think of it that way, because Jesus loved people a lot. Jesus went out to the marginalized and the hurting and the broken and the forgotten and those that were dehumanized and those that were chewed up in the jaws of religion and even militaristic world superpowers like Rome. Jesus actually cared about for all these, all these people, which tells us God the Father must too. And then in this context, he says, as you and I are one, and he says, I in you and you in me, that they may be one, 
so that the world might believe that you sent me. Did you catch that? Just in case, I'll read one other little passage and we'll circle back. Listen to what it says. Verse 23, I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world, again, Jesus is pointing to this like bigger picture, so that the world, so the bigger order of things that really is not much of an order, it's more of a chaos of things, that the world of chaos might know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Did you catch that? What Jesus is suggesting that when my people come together and they love each other, when they press into peace and learning to work through things and apologizing and forgiving and embracing and reconciling, again, we'll talk more about that in just a moment, but when, when and, and how nuanced that is and how challenging in a lot of ways that is, but when my people do that, they step into one of the most profound testimonies that point to the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his son to this world to die for this world and then to give life to this world, what we would call as the hope of salvation. Uh, a guy named Francis Schaeffer who wrote in the 70s, one of my all-time favorite writers, uh, he wrote this little book that's just on this entire prayer and on this particular passage right here. And one thing that he said is that, that, that the world has every right to judge us whether or not we are truly loving each other, that when the world looks at us, as followers of Jesus, they are going to make assumptions. And the assumptions that they're going to make about God are based upon how we get along as followers of Jesus. So in other words, if we don't get along with others, then he, in his little book, basically says, they have every right to question whether or not God is alive. They have every right because they have no substantial evidence to point to that would give them any other conclusion. But the flip side is true, that when the world looks at people who maybe are diverse and annoying and don't get along typically that great with each other, or might have a diversity of opinions or suggestions or ideas or methods by which we do stuff, but when the world looks at, I mean, look, we know this story, right? How many of us have talked to that person that's like, I can never believe in God because you Christians can't even get along with each other? Right? I mean, there's 30,000, maybe 40,000 different denominations on planet Earth right now. It's unbelievable. I mean, some of them, I mean, at the end of the day, are just kind of ridiculous in how the types of divisions happen. Like, I want this color carpet. No, I want this color carpet. Let's form a new church. Like, like it's kind of crazy, like that type of stuff. I mean, I'm not joking. I, I, I hear that that happens. But I think most of us, at the end of the day, we would look at our lives. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if, if we are in Christ, we actually have more in common than what we actually do have in uncommon or unfamiliar with each other. And what Jesus is saying is that when the world that operates in this dog-eat-dog, tit-for-tat type of mentality, when they see Christians acting in that same way of holding under grudges, holding under vendettas, becoming full of vengeance towards other people, they, they can draw this conclusion that maybe God really is not doing anything in this world because his own followers are so stuck in the same ways that we broker in. Again, I'm I'm not trying to put words in Jesus' mouth. I'm just trying to let Jesus speak what he's communicating and conveying. But he seems to think, we can go back to this uh, five points. There we go. Somewhere. There we go. There we go. Uh, That Jesus actually believed that the unity of his people would be the most powerful testimony that he was sent by God to bring hope and salvation. Fourthly, it's not always possible, and here's, here's a simple fact of the matter. It's not always possible 
to live at peace with all people. So this is implied, obviously, in the passage in Romans chapter 12, where basically Paul says, if it's as much as possible as it depends upon you, live at peace. The, the implication is that it's not always possible. And then secondly, we also see that little passage of uh, uh, Philippians, where he entreats Yodia and Syntyche. Again, um, it's fascinating to me that obviously there's some sort of issues going on between the two of them. And, but this leads me to the final last fifth thing is to consider is the fifth thing is that it actually is possible to try to live at peace. So I would suggest the idea of peacemaking is a practice that we actually do. It's not something that just happens naturally. In fact, if many of us are looking for peace to happen in our lives or to take the place of the relational scandals that kind of lay throughout the landscape of our lives, then that will never happen. Peacemaking takes a lot of effort takes a lot of hard work. Sometimes it even takes a lot of long conversations, long emails, long, hard, anguishing types of emotional conversations. But what I would suggest to you, at the end of the day, it matters and is worth it. Not because of my opinion, but because of Jesus. It's his prayer. It's his vision. It's where everything is headed. So if we stand in the way in this context and we say, I refuse to enter into the forgiveness and the reconciliation and the healing and the peacemaking that you are giving, then at some point, I, 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 I will be knocked off my feet. Just like in my favorite Instagram post by, called Kook of the Day. You guys ever seen that? My favorite. Every once in a while, it shows these images of people going out, standing in the water on the beach, and this big wave comes in and just knocks people back because they're not prepared for it. God's kingdom will knock us off our feet in a good way. If we're a follower of Jesus, it will knock us off our feet, and it, be, it might even become the very beginning stage of God doing something fresh and new in our lives. But we cannot stand in the way of what God is up to in this world. And what God is up to in this world has to do with peacemaking. So with that being said, like I said, at the end, it's not always possible, though Paul actually believes it is possible to do this, to at least try. And this is one of the things that I love, and I want to just jump on to the very next thing to consider this, that, that Paul actually believed it is possible. Jesus believed it's possible. Hence, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. It is actually possible to do this. And, and think about this. Like when Paul wrote that letter to the Philippians, and he says, I entreat Judea and Syntyche, you know, get along, work things out. Again, I, I want you to think about the tangible reality of what's going on here. This is a, this is a small church. Nobody really knows how big this church was in uh, Philippi. I mean, it might, it might have been like, you know, a collection of homes. We're talking maybe 25, maybe 50 people, maybe 100 people max. And within this context, you've got two ladies that, for whatever reason, something happened between the two of them and are not getting along, getting along anymore. And, and yet these two ladies are amazing. They love Jesus. They're committed to the work of the gospel. Paul actually says, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for them because they've been huge help for me. Unfortunately, these two gals are not getting along and what I want is for them to learn how to get along. And he actually invites others to say, you guys, the rest of you church family, gather around them and figure out ways to help them to work through this difficult situation. Why? Because not only does it matter, but actually Paul believed that it's possible. <laughs> I love this. Paul recognized the power and the hope that's given to us in the resurrection of Jesus is even greater than the greatest grievances that you may harbor or hurts or wounds or offenses that you might bear. Even greater. 
So with that being said, I want to move on to the last final things and just kind of ask some questions. First of all, I want to look at the thought of like, what is peacemaking? What, what uh, the practice of peacemaking does not look like? Okay, these are at least two things. Right, peacemaking does not look like becoming besties. I think it's really important to note this. It's not necessarily that the two of you are going to somehow go from this moment of like deep grief and agony and hurt and pain and offense to now you guys are like riding tandem bikes and wearing matching t-shirts. Like that, that might not ever happen. It might not ever happen. At least in this life, it might not ever happen. So it's, that's important to note that. Number two, it, it, it involves like forcing reconciliation on someone who is not ready. This, it cannot look like that. You cannot somehow like force your way. Like you might have a deep desire in your heart, like I really, really want reconciliation. I'm going to make this happen. It just doesn't work that way. Because it takes, as I kind of put in parentheses, it takes one to forgive but two to reconcile. So this is what I want to say about this. Forgiveness and reconciliation are distinct. It's really important for you to note this. So forgiveness is something that you can actually enter into right now. If you have unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody or you've been hurt or wounded or grieved, like forgiveness is something that you can step into and God begins to heal your heart. Even if they don't even, for, uh, even, if, even if they don't repent or acknowledge their offense, you still, by God's grace, by help, can begin to forgive that person. Forgiveness is this act, this process, this practice of letting go of whatever that offense is. Sometimes that involves a deep, lengthy practice of, of acknowledging, recognizing. It's never turning away. It's really important to note this. That's cheap forgiveness, by the way. Just being like, you know what, I'm just going to turn my mind away from the deep offense that's there. That's unhelpful, by the way. And Jesus, when he deals with deep offenses, never does that. He always deals with the actual sin or grievance. And again, there's different layers of this. I mean, there's small offenses, there's really big offenses like abuse or sexual abuse and so on and so forth. But the point of the matter is, is that forgiveness is distinct from reconciliation. Because reconciliation, it takes two people that are willing to say, I'm willing to work on this. And sometimes, to some degree, it involves a lot of Rebuilding of that trust. So you cannot force reconciliation upon somebody. They have to be willing to kind of work with that. So for, that's one of the reasons why I said number four, forgiveness or reconciliation is not always possible with everybody. You may want it. They may not. And at some point until God begins to be, uh, reshape the landscape relationally of their heart and show them uh, now, again, that might take weeks, it might take months, it might take years. It may not ever happen on this life or in this life. And you just got you to you accept that. You got to be able to learn the process and the hard challenge of learning how to forgive. And again, it's not easy. I want to be really clear on this. Forgiveness, and I should probably also add on here, it's, forgiveness is not easy. It's never an easy process. Again, that's why I said there's degrees of offenses and therefore there's degrees of forgiveness. So forgiveness may be a very, very lengthy process whereby you don't just simply once be like, I forgive them. It might be a reoccurring practice of thinking through what God has done for you and the grace that he offers to you and then applying that forgiveness in that context. So with that being said, I want to finish with some other thoughts and then we'll come back to that. So what does the practice of peacemaking look like? And I think at least five things are derived from the passages that we just read. I'll go through these pretty quickly and hopefully it'll make some sense. Number one, I think it involves practicing blessing. This is where Paul says in Romans chapter 12, again, a great uh, form of offense is people that persecute you. And this word that he uses to persecute is the word oppress or to bring crushing down 
weight upon somebody else. Again, this could be somebody that's forceful or aggressive or not kind. It could be a rude boss. It could be a condescending spouse. It uh, could be in, in a wide variety of things. What, what Paul says is to begin to practice a blessing, learning how to bless those. Uh, again, bless those who persecute you. This stuff doesn't come easy. I want to be really clear on this. Doesn't come really easy. Uh, I've been trying to create this analogy for you guys all the way along through this. Is that these are like muscles in our lives that take time and energy and practice to begin to work up. So for many of us, the idea of actually blessing other people. Now I want to also say that a blessing does not necessarily mean endorsing, nor giving a person a free pass. So if someone is aggressive or forceful or manipulative, um, that doesn't mean you just simply turn away from it and ignore it, that's, that's not helpful for that person. What they need is to be confronted by that sin, a simple proclivity and action, and then by God's grace begin to help them to see the error of their ways and how it causes great danger. But again, the practice of learning to bless those who persecute you is a muscle that Jesus does, Jesus invites his followers to do. Paul just simply reiterates what Jesus said. Secondly, it looks like practicing empathy. And I think this is where Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And then he goes on to say, live in harmony with those around you. Um, the idea that I think he's describing here is empathy. And empathy is really this ability to be able to kind of get into another person's mindset. I think, honestly, this is one of the number one reasons why you cannot have, I mean, every once in a while it might happen, but you cannot, in general, have a decent conversation on Facebook or Twitter because it lacks empathy. It lacks anybody actually stepping in and asking questions like, well, tell me, why do you think this particular way? Why do you think this about this particular political subject matter? Why do you think this about this particular situation here? Nobody asks those questions for the most part, and I say nobody in general is type terms, but most of the time, that's, people don't ask those questions. So in other words, what it means is that people, for the most part, we are not wired to want to even know how another person is thinking. In other words, we are non-empathetic creatures by nature. This is a muscle that needs to be exercised. We enter into other people's suffering. We enter into other people's joys. We ask the things that, what are the things that make you happy, that bring you suffering, that bring you grief. That's part of the process of rehumanizing someone. You know that, right? One of the reasons why it's so easy in our culture today to just criti become critical of other people or to criticize others or to just talk condescendingly about other people is because what happens at some point in our minds, we're just like, well, they're just an idiot or they're just a stupid person. And what we do, we are literally dehumanizing that person. And the moment we dehumanize that person to subhuman level, now it's really easy to just omit them, to say anything nasty about that person. But what happens if you sat down and had coffee with that person and listened to their story and began to understand a little bit about maybe why they began to do the things that they had done or why they live a certain lifestyle that they live or why they act the way they do? Uh, then what you'll begin to understand is maybe, maybe they're just a human being that has deep hurt and grief and pain and loss and challenges that they're in process of working through, just like you. And, and it's, a, it's a muscle that we begin to practice. But it's a muscle that begins to lean into this overall practice of, of peacemaking. You cannot have peacemaking without empathy. And I would even argue that Jesus is the most empathetic person ever to walk this planet. How? He stepped into our suffering. You, you know this, right? This is why the writer of Hebrews 
says, don't you know that we have a high priest? It's not like the order of Melchizedek or that's not like the order of Aaron's priesthood or not like any other priest that's ever lived on this planet. He knows how to help you because he suffered. He knows what betrayal looks like. He knows what it means to invest in friendships and have those friendships go south. He knows what it means to have others talk smack about you behind your back. He knows what it means to basically have everybody abandon you. He knows because he felt it himself. Empathy, powerful. Uh, thirdly, this is practice, I would say pra- practicing humility. This is where Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter 12. I'll just read it. Verse 16, he says these words. says, uh, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. It's an old way of saying prideful, haughty. Like, don't think, haughty, he's a, he's a haughty. <laughs> but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Do you like, ah, I kept a pretty straight face. Anyways, he goes on to say, never be wise in your own sight. The, the, the big idea is don't be prideful. Learn how to put others first. Uh, that phrase in the original language is, is a little bit tricky. It's why uh, if you have any other translation other than the ESV, uh, it reads in a lot of variety of different ways. I'll, I'll read you a couple other examples of this. Um, in the New Living Translation, it says this, live in harmony with each other. Do not be proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Don't be proud to enjoy the company of ordinary, pe- ordinary people. Who are the ordinary people in your life? You know, we, we oftentimes pick and choose and size up people based upon what type of good feedback or likes that they'll provide for me or my Instagram feed or my life in general. And we typically avoid people that don't give us that boost. We avoid those people. And what Paul is saying, that's, that's prideful. Not even God operated that way. God comes into our world, becomes human being, and lives into our Deepest grief and shame. And then the NIV says this, do not be proud, uh, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Low position, ordinary people. Again, you get the idea. It's, it's a challenging Greek word to translate, but the big idea is, is practice humility. Learn how to create space in your life for the quote-unquote other. Who are the others in your life? Who are those that you or I may be prone to dehumanize? Why? Why do we do that? Do they have different color skin? Do they have different other preferences in their life that are different than yours? Do they belong to a different church community? Like, why, why do we do that? Different ethnicity. It's the opposite of, of peacemaking. The invitation for us is to really consider how peacemaking works in our life. Fourthly, practice self-control from what Paul describes as revenge. Listen to how he describes this in verse 17. He says, Repay no one evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Um, the idea is, is to don't create space for vengeance. This, this idea that just wants to retaliate immediately. Um, what Paul's inviting us into is to really look at our, 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 our reactions. And again, like a muscle, um, and that we can be so reactionary and responsive when attacked, we fire back. And I'll, and I'll be straight up honest, like, this is me. Like, I don't all, my first shot in terms of response is not, is not always that good. And if you've been in my closest world, whether it be my spouse or my kids, 
and this is, this is my deepest shameful, like sinful proclivity that I'm totally ashamed of and I'm frustrated with. And I wish Jesus would fix this sooner than later. But the point of the matter is, is it, it, it's created in me a response mechanism that after I fire back, and it's not kind, it's not uh, filled with a degree of love and generosity and gentleness, I have to go back at some point and say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry the way I talked to you. The way I responded, that was, not, that was not the best me. And that's not the me that Jesus is shaping me into. And it probably barbed you. It was like a, like a knife. That's not good. And I apologize about that. Um, but again, practicing self-control. So as God begins to shape us, hopefully these become areas where we become more controlled over these areas and responses. Uh, fifthly, practice an eagerness for unity. This is taken out of Ephesians chapter 4. I just want to read you the whole passage. Just listen to what Paul has to say, and I'm going to wrap this up with some final thoughts. Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy, in Ephesians chapter 4, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Here's what's amazing, is that Paul basically says, look, at the end of the day, if you're in Jesus, what he's calling us to is the idea of peacemaking. It's not a foreign property or a foreign trait. It is innate. What Paul is saying is walk in the way that is part of your future. Walk in the way that is consistent with where everything in the universe is headed through Jesus. Walk in a way that lines up with heaven and earth coming together as one. Because as we do that, we demonstrate by way of our actions that Jesus has come into this world. He's brought salvation and healing and wholeness. It's really a powerful testimony. Listen to as what he goes on to say. Verse 2. And with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's the little phrase I get there. Eager to maintain the unity. Not only about you, but if you were to like ask yourself um, on a degree of you know, 1 to 10, 10 being like, I'm so amped up and excited about peacemaking. It's like my whole world. Um, and then one being like, I just want to run from people or punch them. Um, like, like, think about like, where, where are you at on that like, eagerness scale? Um, what, what Paul says, practicing this eagerness, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Is, is that our aim? Is that something that we long for? Is that even on our radar that says, I really want to see a church united around Jesus. My aim, even within this church community, is I want to build it up to the most, to become the most profoundly godly and organized and loving community that can possibly be. Or is it one that just simply says, just I'm tired of whatever. I'm going to walk away. The heart of Jesus is to say to step into some of these deep challenges and say, I will become a peacemaker. And I will use my energy, my strength, all that God gives me to step into this. So what I want to kind of finish up with just some thoughts with regard to this is I want to look at one final thing. And I'll just kind of geek out with you guys real quick and we're going to watch a little video. So I want to give you this final thing to consider. Again, it's kind of a big, geeky, nerdy type of thing, but it's what's called the indicative imperative paradigm. None of you knew that I was going to go here, so you're welcome. But here's, I want you to think about this. It actually makes a lot of sense, and it's really profound. Just listen to what it, this idea. Is the indicative mood of reading the Bible or any passages in the, in the Scripture is this idea that it indicates or expresses, as it says up here, an objective fact or reality, 
Uh, it is a, it's a statement. It is declarative. It denotes some sort of simple assertion. It is the mood of certainty. It refers to what God has done for us in Christ. So it's important to note this. Again, big, big idea. It indicates something that's to be true. Now, the imperative, on the other hand, is this express, it expresses a command, an order, an entreaty, a request, or an exhortation. It's a mood of volition. It calls us to live in a certain way. So one of the best examples of this, I think, when Paul writes, he says something to this effect. He says to those to whom he's writing, he says, because you've been reconciled to God, that is indicative. It indicates something that's happened. You and I, as people that have been offensive and we have been rebellious and we have not been in consistency walking out the ways of God, therefore, we have been the ones that have caused conflict and chaos in the universe and our relationship with God. But what God does is he steps into our chaos takes it upon himself. It's what the cross is all about. He allows the forces of evil and rebellion and destruction to come upon him in full. It crushes him to the point of death. But we know the third day he rises again from the dead. And what he says is that God has reconciled you to himself. That's indicative. Then Paul goes on to say, therefore, let us press into the ministry of reconciliation. That's an imperative. And the invitation of the imperative is built upon the indicative. Now, I want to make sure you get this straight because this, this will revolutionize the way you read your Bible and it will actually set you free. Because for some of us, we hear this, we're like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. This is such a weighty reality. It sounds like what the pastor's telling me to do. I got to press into every broken, hurting, challenged, compromised relationship. I got to be a peacemaker and I got to forgive and I got to be reconciled to all these people that have been hurtful and wounding to me and all this. And I don't, I don't know, this feels absolutely full of burdens for me. What I would suggest to you is what you need to do is take a step back and just focus on the indicative. What has Jesus done for you? Don't even think about the imperatives yet. Just focus on the indicatives. What has he done for you? And don't leave that until your heart has has swelled, has bloomed. Don't leave that indicative until your heart is thought out, until it's changed, until it's become malleable, don't leave that until life has begun to sprung up into fullness. And then what you'll find is that the imperatives are empowered by the indicatives. Doesn't mean it's easy, mind you. Doesn't mean it's easy. Because always, I don't care where you're at in life, no matter what type of challenges or hardships that you have faced, love and forgiveness and peacemaking are the most idealized concepts in our world today. Everybody talks about them. Everybody idealizes them. But many people do not step into them because, like I said at the beginning, they're very, very hard. What I'm suggesting is that as followers of Jesus... We have been brought into a narrative that is about a God that has stepped into our lives in the brokenness, in the turmoil that has been brought upon by our rebellion. And he says, I love you. And I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. I will wash you. I will cleanse you. I will forgive you. And I will be with you for all eternity. And I will be yours, you will be mine, and your life will be totally new. Let that truth 
saturate the deepest roots of your life. And then, then you can begin to consider, what are the areas in my life that God is calling me to step into those broken places, those hurting places, those challenged places, those compromised places? Again, it's going to look differently. There are so many different things I could probably say, but I'm not going to, and I'll leave you with this final thought, and then we'll watch this video, and then we'll wrap it up. Is if you're looking for a good book, there's a book called uh, The Peacemaker. It's really easy to remember. It's, just think of the name of the title of the message here, The Peacemaker. The Peacemaker is by a guy named Ken Sandy. Uh, I realize this nature of forgiveness, reconciliation, and peacemaking is very nuanced. There's all sorts of ways to consider it, think about it, because for some of us, like I said earlier, some of the offenses are small, some of the offenses are massive and monumental and have deep, deep scars that are deep within our past and our history, and some of these people that we're having to deal with are, are not just kind-hearted, like, hey, I want to be forgiven, and I want to work through this, and I'm humble, and I'm willing to change. Uh, some of them are just straight-up manipulators and or abusive people, and I would suggest you should never be reconciled to those people. You heard me, right. Some people in your life you should never be reconciled to. You can forgive them, but you should never be reconciled to them because they're toxic. But I would suggest that for the most part, most of our relationships, many of our relationships, there's healing to be pressed into and sought after. My hope this morning would be, if anything, to just kind of put this on your radar to think about, to press into. So I'm going to watch this little video. It's on the subject of peace. It's by the people from the Bible Project. And then I'll have the worship team come on up, and they'll get ready to lead us. And then we'll finish with just a prayer and wrap things up. So here's the video. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. 
a time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Good stuff. How about we all stand and uh, worship you and we'll come on up. What I would love for us to do right now is I want to read a prayer. It is commonly known as the prayer of St. Francis, though a lot of history has shown that it's probably not written by this guy, St. Francis. Um, but nonetheless, it's a prayer I'm sure you've heard. Um, and it's pretty powerful. So what I want to do is I want to invite you to just pray it after me, repeat it after me. In fact, what I would invite you to do before we begin to sing, why don't we just all close our eyes right now? And if you would like, you can just lift out your hands. It's just a, a, a way of saying, inviting God's presence to make you this instrument. It's called make me an instrument of your peace. So just listen to it, and I would love for you to just repeat after me each line, and then we'll begin to sing and respond by partaking of communion, the bread, the cup, and being prayed for. If you're here this morning, you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life. Do business with God today. I'll be up in the front. We'll have some other people in the front just available to come pray with you. There's some rugs in the front for you just kneel before God to give your allegiance, your loyalty to this Prince of Peace. So repeat after me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there's offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring light. Where there is sadness, let me bring joy. God, make us instruments of peace, just like Jesus was the ultimate instrument of peace. Our peace with you, God. is completely 100% connected to Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we would continue to just remain in a status of animosity and anger and pushing you away. 
So Jesus, come be the Prince of Peace over our hearts and then use our lives to become instruments of peace in the brokenness 